Good morning. Wonderful to have you here worshiping with us this morning. Let's all stand and sing together. and pray with me. Lord, that's our goal. We just want to be a living sanctuary just for you, Lord. We want you just to come and fill us up and then help us to share that your love and your joy with everyone that we meet. Lord, help us to do that this morning. Help us just to be filled with your Holy Spirit and your presence, Lord, as we go about this worship service. In your name I pray. Amen.
Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. It's been so long since I sang that song and know. Those simpler times of faith. Won't you please come back and take me away? Raising grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Is that song still about me? All to Jesus I surrender, all to Him I freely give. I will live and love and trust Him. Is that still the way I live and know? Those simpler times of faith. Won't you please come back and take me away? He walks with me and he talks with me. Tells me I am his own. Joy we shared as we tarried there. But now that garden is so overgrown and old. Those simpler times of faith. Won't you please come back and take me away? Lord, won't you write me? A new song Something to pick me up And help me along Lord, won't you write me A new song loves me, this I know, for in my heart I feel a glow, in my weakness he is strong, and in my soul there's a new song, and oh, those simpler times of faith, turns out those simpler times of faith. Just one little prayer away Turn and speak to someone before you sit down And children, we invite you to come here to join us for a few moments of sharing
Good morning. How are you guys? I want to share with you something today that, um, that I like to do. I like to garden. This is a new thing for me. I didn't know that I would like to garden, but I think it's really cool to find out that something that would start this tiny. Can you see how tiny these are? Oh, yep, I dropped one. We might be planting some seeds on here. This tiny, tiny, tiny can grow into something big, and in a garden, it can produce food. And I love that. I think that's really awesome, that something can start out so teeny tiny, and, and when I take care of it, and I water it, and I pick all the weeds, and take just watch it, and make sure it's got enough sun, I don't know how more. I know that um, if I take really good care of it, then it will grow, and it will grow into a huge plant, and it will produce some fruit. Well, um, this is something that Eli gave me for Mother's Day, and it's got three little stems right here, and they're starting to, to flower out, and then when it grows, Caroline, don't touch it, when it grows, it will grow up into these big, beautiful marigold flowers, and that reminded me this morning of um, the way that God works with us. Did you know that, that God knew all about you when you were just a teeny tiny little bitty seed? We didn't start out as seeds, did we? No. But the Bible says that God knew all about us and that he formed us in our mother's womb. So when you were inside your mommy in the bell in her belly, he knew all about you then. And he knew what you were going to grow up and become. And he, he knew that you were going to be sitting right here with me today. He knew, he knew all about you even before you were born. The Bible says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. So he makes us even before we even know ourselves, he knows. And he's got a great, great plan for us. And we don't need to worry. Just like these seeds, he's going to water us. Not really with water, right? But he's going to help us, help us to grow and give us everything that we need to grow and to become beautiful, beautiful human beings and to grow up in service for him. So let's pray together. Will you repeat after me? Dear Lord. Thank you, Thank you for making me, making me fearfully, fearfully and, wonderfully and wonderfully in your image. In your name I pray. Amen. <laughs> Lost your tie, okay. Rather seedy experience there, wasn't it? Uh, anyway, good to see all of you here this morning as we come for this hour of worship. If you're visiting with us, we're delighted you're here, and I'll say some more about that in a moment. But I want to give you first an opportunity to uh, fill out a prayer request card if you have a concern uh, heavy on your heart that you'd like us to join you in prayer. Uh, four. If you raise your hand, we'll get you an index card um, and fill something out there that you don't mind me repeating, and then we'll collect them uh, as quick as you hold them up to uh, indicate you're ready. Um, 
John is holding up a sign back there that says, oh, I know why you got that up. I thought you were trying to tell me something. I'll, okay, hang on. Um, <clears throat> we do have wonderful activities going on here uh, in the mornings and all uh, afternoons and evenings. And so if you're visiting, there's a Sunday school class for you, regardless of your age. Uh, we'd love for you to stay for that at 10. And then our traditional service in the sanctuary is at 11 uh, and today, if you wanted to stay, you'd get to hear two different sermons. That doesn't always happen, but you got Bill now and me later. So uh, anyway, we invite you to hang around. A couple of announcements for today, um, and then I'll get Katie to come on up so she can make you one. She says, don't forget to register to join us for our Vacation Bible School 2012 at Operation Overboard, uh, Sunday, June 3 through Thursday, June 7. 6 to 7.45 each night. Registration forms are available in the back or you can see Katie. Come on. If any of my other mission kids want to run up here really quick, we wanted to make an announcement um, regarding Relay for Life, which was on this past Friday night. Um, the mission kids worked really hard to raise money for this event, and I am so proud of them. So I wanted to give you a chance to join me in thanking them for all their hard work. The event itself raised over $92,000 at this point, but money is still coming in. Um, and I'll have our church total soon. But would you join me in thanking these mission kids? We had, we had a great time on Friday night, and we carried out our cupcake theme and we had a booth that looked like a party or a birthday party. And we had cupcakes and popcorn and some great lemonade. And we won a great award that night that they are very proud of. We had the best campsite at Relay. So we were really excited. So thank you for your support. And did I hear you got a text this morning about a new baby? Marsha. Marsha Mays has had a little girl. This morning, aha, that's wonderful. We are, uh, you know, I always heard if you keep your nursery full, other places take care of themselves uh, in a church. So that's a, that's a wonderful thing. Um, do you have your prayer cards ready? If you will raise them up, we will collect them and um, share prayer time together. You know, um, as they're collecting, let me tell you that <clears throat> Penny and I are living in a neighborhood in Spartanburg where all the streets are named after triple crown winners. Like we're on Affirmed, and there's a Thunder Gulch and a Secretariat. I sure don't want to have, I'll have another street, but it kind of looks like after yesterday, <clears throat> I might have to move to that street if that's the case. Two out of three now. Let us uh, join our hearts together in prayer. Lord, we are very thankful for this day to be together, for to, share, to be able to share a smile and a laugh with one another and an embrace of your love with each other. It is a very meaningful thing to us to belong to this portion of your great family that meets here um, at Memorial Church, and we're grateful for this and pray your blessings upon us. These are our special prayers for this day. 
For Evan Bigby, a 10-month-old who's starting chemotherapy tomorrow. For Amy Copeland, for her healing and long recovery ahead. For high school graduates and, co and for co-workers, family. We pray for Bill Brown for healing and for his family. For Daryl, that he may turn his life to God. For family members to grow closer in their relationship with God. For Glenn Stribling, who is being treated for leukemia. We pray for a friend, Shenna, who is going through a lot personally. And we pray for a mentally ill father. For troops in harm's way, their families and loved ones. For comfort and healing for Martha Gibson. We give you thanks for a recent good news on a new job opportunity, and we pray for a couple whose baby came six weeks early. Lord, these are our special prayer requests for this day. <clears throat> we pray, Lord, hear our prayers and answer our prayers, and we know that your heart is already united with our hearts as we pray for these, your children. For we pray in Jesus' name as he taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We're privileged to have uh, one of our usual and regular lay speakers with us to bring the message this morning, uh, Bill Clute, who we're just glad he has not flown his aircraft in wrong places like Camp David again. So you're right, you're not going to hear the end of that while I'm here. <laughs> morning. I recently had this dream, and in this dream I was with St. Peter, and he was giving me a glance into the future as heaven. I saw myself there, which was very comforting, but I couldn't help but notice that I was chained to this awful-looking woman, and she, she was hideous, the worst-looking thing I'd ever seen. Now, you probably don't believe me, you probably think I'm exaggerating, but Fortunately, a little angel gave me a picture that I could share with you. I, th I think I need to be clear. This picture is unedited. It's just as it was when the little angel gave it to me. I'm, I'm sure there's an explanation, but really. Could there be an explanation that's satisfactory? I, I don't think so. <laughs> There's a, there's a similarity there, I just can't place it, I, I don't know. Anyways, back to the dream. I asked St. Peter why I was chained to this woman. And he said that, you know, while it is true that in life I was a Christian, there were some things I did that weren't so good. So for punishment, I had to be chained to this awful looking person for all eternity. A few moments later, I looked up and I saw Andy Watson. Pastor Andy Watson. He too 
was chained to an ugly woman. I asked St. Peter why, and he said, well, while it is true that in life Andy was a Christian, there were some things he did that weren't so good. So as a penalty, he must be chained to this awful-looking person for all eternity. A few moments later, I looked up and I saw Pastor Arthur Holt. He, too, was chained to a woman, but it was a beautiful woman. She was gorgeous. I asked St. Peter, how is it that Arthur got chained to this beautiful woman? And he said that, well, while in life it's true that she was a Christian, there were some things she did that weren't so good. Throughout the years, Arthur and I have had a lot of fun at each other's expense, and I just want you to know it's been done out of respect for each other, and I think I can speak for my family. I'd say, Arthur, we're, we're going to miss you, and thank you. Our scripture this morning comes from Genesis 1 and Psalm 19. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day they pour out speech. Night after night they communicate knowledge. Faith and science, it's a topic that generates discussion, disagreement, and often anger, not only between Christians and non-Christians, but also between Christians and Christians as well. So I, being one to never let a peaceful setting rest, will tackle this topic. I'm going to cover two of the more controversial subjects, evolution and the age of the earth. Before we dive into these topics, though, we have to be clear about what we are attempting to accomplish and what it is that's being debated. Too often, this discussion turns into a de debate about what classifies as science, what is faith, and what has a proper place in the classroom. Those questions have some importance, but we aren't going to concern ourselves with that this morning, but instead, we're going to be concerned with what is true and factual. John Polkinghorne is a theoretical physicist and professor at Oxford University. He played a key role in this, the discovery of quarks, which are a fundamental particle of matter. Quarks are the particles that make up protons and neutrons. Protons and neutrons are the particles that make up atoms. Atoms are what make up everything we see here this morning. Polkinghorne is also an Anglican priest. Now, this puts him in a very unique position on the topic of faith and science. And this is what he's had to say about it. Science and theology are both concerned with the search for truth. In consequence, they complement each other rather than contrast one another. Of course, the two disciplines focus on different dimensions of the truth, but they share a common conviction that there is truth to be sought. Although in both kinds of inquiry, this truth will never be grasped totally and exhaustively, it can be approximated to in an intellectually satisfying manner. With that introduction, let's talk about evolution, or as some of my more fundamentalist Christian friends call it, evil-lution. When we speak of evolution, we need to be clear about what we're talking about. There are basically three aspects of the theory people could be referring to when they say evolution. One, small change over time, also known as microevolution. Two, common descent. And three, the process of random mutation and natural selection, also known as Darwinism. Microevolution is rarely disputed. We see evidence of it all the time. The annual flu vaccine is an example. The vaccine must be changed each year because the virus evolves, enabling it to become immune to the previous year's vaccine. And this is microevolution in action. Common descent 
is the idea that all life forms on earth are descended from one common ancestor. And this idea has some misconceptions that some anti-evolutionists have tried to use as an argument against evolution. What they say is that evolution shows that humans descended from chimpanzees, but that's not correct. What it says is we share a common ancestor. A common descent is often illustrated using the tree of life. The tree charts the origins of all life forms on earth. The chart we see here shows humans and chimpanzees on the top right hand sharing a common ancestral branch. Let's see if I can highlight them right up there. The fossil record is typically cited as evidence for common descent. Similarity is shown in fossils from one time frame to a time frame later, and it's inferred that one must have descended from the other. Now, there is some dispute as to whether or not the fossil record actually shows common descent, or that the assertion that just because two things are anatomically similar, they must be genetically related. But I'm not going to spend any time on that this morning. Instead, I'm going to focus on the third idea, random mutation and natural selection. This idea, also known as Darwinism, is the mechanism of evolutionary theory. This was Charles Darwin's contribution. It's the mechanism through which organisms evolve from one species to a new one. Prior to Darwin's contribution, evolution was a common idea, but it lacked a mechanism. When you hear about the argument between intelligent design and evolution, this is what they're arguing about. In fact, some of the leading proponents of intelligent design accept the first two ideas of microevolution and common descent, but they reject this third idea of Darwinism as the mechanism. What Darwinism proposes is that over time, unguided, random mutations will take place in the various life forms. Some of the mutations will be detrimental to survival, and as a result, the specimens containing the mutations will die off. This is called natural selection. The mutations that are beneficial will survive and be passed on through reproduction and then through trillions of iterations of unguided random mutations, eventually new species will be generated. So what is the evidence given for Darwinism? Two popular observations are typically given. One is the finches of the Galapagos Islands. Darwin observed finches in different environments of these islands having different beak sizes. He concluded that uh, the finches evolved different beak forms to adapt to their environment. The other observation is the peppered moss of England. In this example, it was observed that during the Industrial Revolution, the ratio of dark-bodied moss increased while the light-bodied moss decreased. Now, due to the coal-burning factories in London during the Industrial Revolution, the trees became darker and the light-bodied moss became easy prey for the birds. Therefore, their survival rates went down. In recent years, with cleaner air, the light-bodied moss are once again the higher ratio over the dark-bodied moss. In both of these examples, we see evolution, but it's microevolution, small change over time. We don't see evidence of anything becoming new. In fact, in both of these examples, nothing new was created. When the environment returned to what it previously was, all the ratios returned to what they previously were. So the idea that unguided, random mutations and natural selection can account for the origin of the species turns out to be a huge extrapolation from microevolution. Darwin believed that given enough time, billions of years, microevolutionary events would generate new genetic information in complex body parts, but at this time, evidence is lacking. Now, I want you to understand how big an extrapolation I'm talking about. It's much greater than the idea of, say, humans and cows having a common ancestor. 
As we go from level to level in the proposed ancestries of humans, we go from fish to starfish to insects, sponges, fungi, and finally plants such as algae. But that's just on this slide. This slide isn't the whole tree. This slide is. The entire previous slide is condensed way up on the right-hand corner, simply labeled animals, plants, and fungi. Non-Christian scientists John Barrow and Frank Tipler in their book, The Anthropic Cosmological Principle, examined 10 requirements for the evolution of intelligent life on Earth. They found that each of these requirements was so unlikely to be met that the sun would run through its life cycle and cease being the type of star necessary for life to be possible on Earth before intelligent life could evolve by means of unguided random mutations and natural selection. Now, all this doesn't mean Darwinism is false. It just means it's lacking evidence to be called fact at this time. But if Darwinism was shown to be the factual explanation for the origin of the species, would it have any bearing on Christian belief? Well, some say no. They assert that, yes, God created all life on Earth, but he used Darwin's evolution to do it. I think some Christians are too quick to accept this at times. We have to understand that a necessary property of Darwinism is that it's unguided. It's without design and purpose. The Christian belief, though, has always been that God created humans by design for a specific purpose. All throughout the Bible, we read of God's plan for mankind. The idea that God would guide an unguided, purposeless process to purposely create humans seems contradictory and incoherent. Now, some Christians reject the idea of Darwinism because they say it requires billions of years, but they say the Bible clearly states that the universe is only about 6,000 years old and God created everything within about six days. My old King James Version says right there in the margin that Genesis 1-1 took place in 4004 BC. So it must be true, right? It's in the Bible. Well, the truth is the original scriptures didn't contain those dates. The original King James Version didn't even contain those dates. Those dates weren't formulated until 1650 when an Irish bishop named James Usher came up with them. They were popularized in the 1900s when C.I. Schofield included them in his popular Schofield Reference Bible. The problem, though, is that Usher either didn't, didn't know or he ignored the fact that Jewish history does not include all generations when listing family lines. Jewish historians were only concerned with documenting significant people, so many generations would not have been included, and this distorts his calculations. Even without Usher's dating, we still have to consider a six-day creation. Is that what the Bible really describes? This whole question revolves around the English word day and its Hebrew equivalent, yom. Must it be interpreted as 24-hour periods? Well, that's what some say. They say that to interpret it any other way is to treat the Bible as fallible with errors, but both day and the Hebrew yom can have different meanings depending on the context. We see evidence right in Genesis. In Genesis 1-5, God calls the light day and the dark night. That clearly isn't a day of 24-hour period. We also can't ignore the fact that God did not put light on the earth until the fourth day, which leaves us wondering what was the standard of time for the first three days. In Genesis 2-4, we find the Hebrew yom again, but this time it refers to a period of time which, is, which encompasses all six days in which God created the heavens and the earth. The usage here is similar to when we refer to something that happened you know, back in the day. In the New Testament, in Hebrew 4, it is said that the seventh day, the Sabbath, continues even into today. 
Now, some will try to defend the 24-hour period definition of day in the creation story by asserting that if a number is used with the Hebrew yom, it must mean a 24-hour day. So when we read the first day or the second day, it must be interpreted as a 24-hour period. But there's no Hebrew grammatical rule to support that idea. It seems to be invented simply to support the belief. And there is some archaeological evidence for a young 6,000-year-old universe, and I could easily accept the fact that God could do that. But the predominant scientific evidence doesn't support that age, though. The scientific evidence supports a universe that began to exist about 13.7 billion years ago and an Earth that's existed for about 4.5 billion years. And this would clearly conflict with the six-day creation if we insist that each day, reference of day in Genesis be a 24-hour period. If we consider the references of day in Genesis to be undeclared periods of time, there's no problem and it wouldn't conflict with the verses we just discussed. What is important when reading the creation story is not the length of time, but the beginning of time. Genesis 1.1 tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But what does it mean to say, in the beginning? Well, it's the beginning of time. Time and the universe began to exist at the same moment, and this is the same thing that science tells us. According to the leading theory on the beginning of the universe, all space, time, and matter began to exist a finite time in the past, and it began from nothing. This has caused a bit of dilemma for scientists that believe that the only truths that exist are the truths that are displayed by science. The dilemma is that they know that things don't just pop into existence uncaused from nothing. There must have been a cause. But since space, time, and matter did not exist until the universe began, this cause must have been non-spatial, non-temporal, and immaterial. But that would be out of the realm of science. God would certainly be, certainly be a good candidate for this cause. Some scientists that recognize, this, that recognize this have been hard at work looking for alternate explanations. They've come up with string theories, multi-universe theories, bubble universe theories, bouncing universe theories, vacuum fluctuation theories, and many more. None of these have been able to find scientific support or avoid having a beginning, and therefore they still require a cause from outside of the universe. Some scientists, to avoid the idea of the universe coming from nothing, and now are, are now resorting to what appears to be a move of desperation. They're trying to declare that nothing is really not nothing, but really a something we just call nothing. It makes me think of Romans 1, where Paul wrote that their thinking became nonsense and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. The truth, which is what we are looking for, is that the leading science of our day points to the existence of God. But these ideas about creation or evolution and the age of the earth are just peripheral topics for Christianity. Far too often, evolution and intelligent design have become a dividing line between what some consider Christian and non-Christian. Young earth creationism and old earth creationism has also become a dividing line between what some consider Christian and non-Christian. But while these ideas sit on the peripheral, the central belief for Christianity is at the cross. The belief that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, come to earth in human form, crucified and bodily raised on the third day, these are the foundations of the faith and the hope of the Christian church. Any church that denies these truths, regardless of any good, good works they may do, is not a Christian church. 1 John 2 tells us, 
but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah? He is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son can have the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father as well. What you have heard from the beginning must remain in you. If what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he himself made to us, eternal life. I have written these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Deception is rampant in our world. Don't allow yourself to become a victim. Prepare yourself. Study. Be aware of what is going on around you. And let the Holy Spirit guide you to the truth. Amen. Thank you, Bill. If you would join me in standing as we respond to the proclamation of the word using our Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven. Please be seated and let us worship God by giving. Even before there was time 
Though you turn away, I tell you who stay here. Don't you know I've always loved you? And I always will. Stand, let's sing together. like I'm watching from the outside sometimes it feels like I'm breathing but am I alive I will keep searching for answers that aren't here to find all I know is I'm not home yet this is not come falling down on me when I'm lost in the current of a raging sea I have this blessed assurance holding me for that excellent scholarship that Bill put into that sermon and we all benefited from what he had to do, say today. <clears throat> I would say that I could have written it, but I couldn't have. That was excellent. Um, <clears throat> may you go forth in peace this week and, and walk your walk with the Lord and remember that Jesus walks with you. Amen.
great week.